going on, Street Cop fam? I'm Frankie Rodriguez. I am the podcast producer for the Street Cop podcast. Unfortunately, on this episode, you'll notice that our audio on our end, we had some technical difficulties. It doesn't sound the best. However, after discussing with Dennis, we wouldn't want to keep this episode from you guys. It's a really impactful episode with a lot of great information and nuggets and an important message. So thank you guys all for your continued support. And again, our apologies for the technical difficulties. We hope you enjoy the episode and thank you for your support. Very quickly from them sharing their stories with me, I realized that there was a lot of first responders struggling. I didn't realize it until then, until after we lost Alex, that there was a lot of first responders struggling with mental health, trauma, picking up different, you know, filling up that backpack, as they say, right? Um, or compacting whatever they see on the job on an everyday basis and not sharing it with anybody, holding it in. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Street Cop Training Podcast. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. My name is Dennis Benino, and today we have us from the gym. And Linda has a really important cause and story to tell. And I think everybody should be prepared to go into a place of one of these podcasts where I think you're going to really, really find a lot of value. And I think it's going to hit you in your heart and at your core. So I uh, just want to welcome you to the podcast, Linda. Thank you for being here. And I think that your presence here today and your efforts are going to return tenfold. So I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for having me, Dennis. I really appreciate you taking the time to bring highlight um, to such a very important topic um, that we we're going to talk about today. Where are you from originally? Ah, uh, you can hear the accent. I'm from oh. Ireland. Yeah, I'm from Dublin, Ireland. And uh, I have a Greek last name. I'm married to a Greek man. So there's all all stuff going on over there. So when people usually read my last name, they think you're expecting to a Greek accent or someone of Greek history. But I'm from Ireland. I'm from Dublin, Ireland. Came over here about uh, 30 years ago. So how did you and your husband meet? We met here, actually. What made yeah. you in the I literally didn't want to come here for forever. <laughs> To stay here forever, I, I I literally had planned to come here um just uh for a year and um try it out. I had maybe broken up a relationship at home in Ireland and I said, you know what, I need to get a break away. And um and I came over here and no interest in meeting any American man and uh, met my husband, swept me off my feet and the rest is history. Yeah. I don't think Irish girls particularly like American guys. Uh, well, it all depends on on the guy, I suppose, the person, right? And whatever you're into. I wasn't, I was at a point in my life, I really wasn't interested. I just wanted to break away and to find myself, I suppose, um, um, after a long relationship of a breakup. So I was not interested in, in looking at anyone and, and guess my husband swept me off my feet at the time. So, so yeah. What were you thinking about like calling your family like, hey, I'm staying here? What were they saying in? Oh, they were they knew after a while. I mean, they knew after a while when I started talking about my husband a lot more. Um, I had met him and his name started to come into the picture. So my mom for sure, she 
copped onto it right away. Um, all my family are back home, my big brothers and sisters, so I'm the only one here. Um, but yeah, she she knew right away, and it was very quick. I met him in November. He proposed to me in February, and we got married in June. We've been married ever since, and we've been married ever since. Very happily married. Yeah. So let's uh, let's get into what we came here to speak about. Yeah, and maybe you can tell us who you are, and in the sense of as a mom, who you were a mom to, who you are a mom to, yeah, and the story. Yeah. So my name is, well, I, I don't, I, I'll just get into it. My name is Linda Kokoris. Um, I am a mom of five kids. Uh, we lost one um, five years ago, actually, this year in October. I'll get in and talk a little bit about Alex in a few minutes, but we have four kids at home. Um, two of them are, are also married, Stacy and Christina, and Francis and Ailish. And um, we lost Alex we're we're here today. We're talking about um sort of mental health and suicide, right? Uh, in first response, we lost Alex five years ago, October twenty ninth, two thousand eighteen, um to suicide. He was a police officer, um at the time in a town not too far from here in Abington, Massachusetts, on the south shore, um, of of Mass. So Alex was uh, had three beautiful kids. He was married to three beautiful kids. He was living with us at the time. He had come back home to live with us maybe about for eight months, eight to ten months. Um, he had told us that he was, um, you know, breaking up. The marriage was breaking up. He was very, very down. His kids were everything. His wife and kids were everything to him. We said, well, yes, come home. There's a, a room downstairs and room for the kids if you need to bring the kids up and, and the whole thing. So um, very quickly, he, he moved in and settled sort of back in the house with us. Um, the kids were living with the mom at the time. And um, and then he had sort of, you know, visitation with them. Um, he would take them up to the house. He was he was uh, working all hours at the at the police department. I mean. If there was burnout, I would say, yeah, there would be burnout. Um, they were a department that was very, very, I would say, unhealthy department um, under a chief that was not supportive of their first responders. Retention in the police department was zilch. There was everyone wanted to transfer out of there. He was. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to bash someone, um, but it was a very unhealthy department to work for, and um, and it was known in in towns in different departments locally that this chief was was not a good chief to the to the men and women on the department. Um Alex wanted to transfer out many times and he wouldn't let him transfer out because they were all so short, right? In the in the town. It was short in the department. He was um also going through a divorce. Um there was some infidelity um on his wife's side at the time. He was heartbroken came to live with us and uh over the summer he he was bringing the kids up he seemed that there was sort of like a burden maybe lifted from him a little bit that it was finally uh known to us that what was going on within his four walls so to speak and um he uh 
would bring the kids up and they would stay overnight over the summer. They would swim in the pool and he seemed to lighten up a little bit. He seemed, you know, happier somewhat in himself. And um, he was at loggerheads with his chief um, a lot. Um, If there was things that he didn't like that was going on or things he didn't felt was right, um, he would speak up. And uh, so there was definitely going at it with his chief, um, for sure, head to head. And uh, I think that would probably have gotten him into trouble with the chief, um, for sure. Um, Come the end of August, when the kids were going back to school, um, he had said that he he wanted to be near the kids. He missed them. He wanted to be, he was the one that sort of got them out to school in the mornings. He wanted to be uh, with them. And um, he he said he was going to talk to his ex-wife. I'm just using that as an ex-wife at the time um, to see could they work it out. He, he missed her. And I think that he was, he wanted his family back together so much that he was willing to forgive, put all what had happened aside to work on it. And, um, which sort of leads me to believe there was very low self-esteem, you know, his lack of confidence. He just wanted his family back. And um, so he had said he, he was going to move back into the house, but it was very much conditional. Um, he had to ask, like, when he was finished work, um, can I come to the house? And, and it was definitely uh, sleeping downstairs in the basement. But he was OK with that, I believe, um, just because he was able to get the kids off to school. Then it was about two weeks sort of gone from our house and uh, his, all his stuff, all his belongings, all his clothes were still in, at the house. And um, I texted him and said, how are you doing? And he said, it's a mess. It's a mess. And I said, Alex, you can't do this by yourself. You can't do this. You can't fix this. You have to, you, you have to do this through therapy. You have to do this through healing, you know, to gain trust, you can't gain trust back, and you have to do this with with help. You can't do it by yourself. And uh, he said, "I know." And he I, he said, "It's just a mess." And I said, "Come home, come back home. We'll help you. I'll be able to help you." And um, he uh, he had found inappropriate pictures, um, you know, on his wife's phone, sending them to this other guy, and and. Um, so he had he had come home up to see us one of the days. Um, it was probably about a week before he passed, and um, he had told my husband that he was getting like a winter rental in the town that he lived in. It's a very beach home. It's beach um, town, and he was you know going to get a winter rental and move in there. And he had signed a lease, and. Um, you know, instantly I was like, how is he going to do this? Putting all this stress on himself, like supporting the home, like the family home, the winter rental and then working. He was also going to law school. He was a very smart guy. I was like, he's just putting so much pressure on himself. He was an SRO officer. He was a court officer and he was also working patrol and doing law school and, you know, helping out with the kids. So there was a lot. And, um, so he moved out that Saturday and um, into the winter rental. And then we got a call on Monday 
following Monday to say, um, call Alex's phone. Um, there's something, there's something wrong. And um, I was picking up some supplies at a restaurant supply store when my husband came at me. And um, he was out in the car waiting for me when I was in the store. And when I got out, he, he had said to me, there's something wrong with Alex. We need to call him. We need to go. We need to go to Marshfield. We need to go to Marshfield right away. There's something wrong with Alex. And uh, we didn't know what was wrong. And um, he said, there's just something wrong. They keep on saying, call on his phone. They don't know where he is. They're trying to locate him. And I says, who's trying to locate him? And um, at that point, we got a call from the SWAT team to say, call his phone. Um, we believe that he will answer the phone to you guys. And uh, so we continued to try to call. And then we got another call to say, stop calling. We're pinging. We're trying to locate where he is. And um, so we got to Marshfield um, and the town where he lives, where he did live. And um, when we got to the entrance of his um, housing estate, we saw a SWAT team, like big SWAT team truck uh, there, and they were leaving. And there was police officers from the town saying, you can't go in. And we were like, his, we're his parents. And we're like, all the family and the police are over. at the. There was a golf course next to them. They're all over there. And you can go over there. So they wouldn't let us in. We were told that he had taken his life at that point. So we didn't get to see him. Um, yeah. When you got the call and call him, something was wrong. Yeah. As a mother, what was your initial thoughts or intuition? Oh, praying like what's 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 going on with him is he I mean literally that Saturday before right we had gotten a call uh or he had been up at a house and and said he was moving into the winter rental right so we didn't know I definitely didn't think that he was going to harm himself um but when there was a SWAT team you know when we got called to say stop calling them um, we're trying to locate him. That's when, you know, fear sunk in. And the two of us just prayed um, all the way down to, to when we got there. We just prayed, prayed, please, God, please don't, you know, let him be okay. So we didn't know. We didn't know what was going on, but we, we were just praying. And my husband kept on saying, I don't feel good about this. I don't feel good about this. There's something there's something wrong. There's something definitely wrong. So it was definitely disbelief when we got there. Yeah, it was definitely disbelief that this had happened. It was like pure shock, numb. I mean, we didn't know how to react. His kids were in a, a, another room. Um, uh, his ex-wife was there. Um, the police chief was there, I remember. And I remember some of his buddies, his police officer buddies, um, outside, just everyone in shock. I mean, some of them had been with him the day before for lunch. He didn't show up for a training that day um, that he was to go on. And, um, yeah, they they didn't know what was going on. Pure shock. Um, I remember being there and the chief 
you know, not acknowledging any of us, just sort of giving directions to his his officers, but not acknowledging. Afterwards, it was just a blur, like a total blur. Um, even, you know, the week after, um, there was an officer assigned to the family um, to help us with, you know, funeral arrangements and to, you know, to take us through all of that. Um, yeah, I remember if I can tell you a funny story, um, the day after he passed, when Alex was living with us, he, he we have a, a nice back garden, right? And we entertain, we used to entertain a lot and, uh, pool and, and very nice landscaping and the whole thing. And he said to me, you're missing, you're missing a hot tub. And I was like, I'm not getting a hot tub, I'm not getting a hot tub. I'm not doing that. And he was like, you need it. And I was like, you just want a hot tub for you. But when you come home from work and you're, you know, you just want to sink in there. And he was like, no, you're going to get a hot tub. So all summer long, he used to have, he like, he had my husband and, um, you know, his sisters, his siblings, like pitted against me. You know, they would sit down and have dinner and they, and it would all be why they all state their facts, why they all needed a hot tub in the back garden. And he was a big, like, advocate for it. And I was like, no, not doing it. Not It's my back garden. I do all the landscape. You guys don't take care of it. I am not getting a hot tub. But on the slide, maybe about August, I started doing research. And I ordered a hot tub and it was going to take six weeks or so to come in. And I didn't tell any of them. And I said, it'd be a nice surprise. And um, the day after um, Alex passed, the hot tub arrived with a big truck. And my husband said, what's that? And I said, it's a hot tub. I didn't even tell my husband. I said, it's a hot tub I ordered for the family. Because Alex was, he said, tell them to, tell them to take it back. We don't want it. And I said, no, we're, we're going to get it. We're going to bring it in. And um, so we did bring it in. The guys just dropped it in the back garden and we left it there all winter, like all covered, never even opened it, never even got it installed, just left it there, sort of in a the, in the sheltered area. And then, the following March, his birthday, March 14th, um, I said to him, it's spring. Guess what? We're going to open up the hot tub and we're going to put it together and we're going to, this is what you wanted. Because he used to see me come home tired, aching. I get up at 3.30 every morning. So um, I'm, I'm in work at, you know, very early um, to get bacon going and the whole thing. And sometimes I'm not home till 7, 8 o'clock at night. So I used to come home. I'd be home and then go to bed and then back to work again. So he used to say, no, you need that just to relax. So I started did it for him, but it arrived, ironically, it arrived the day after he passed. And um, and we still have that up. So, but that was a, a funny story there. But that was sort of like a, one of the good memories that it can have. We christened it and did a toast and said, okay, this is what you wanted in the back garden. But um, for after the, you know, what happened um, with him after he took his life, following that, is sort of what led me to, you know, do what I'm doing now. Uh, Dennis, it was um, at the beginning, we had a picture up on, on the wall in the cafe and I, I didn't want to sort of forget him here. A lot of first responders and I wanted his name to be spoken about and I didn't want him to um, be forgotten. So I put a, a picture right at the door of the cafe and I had his, his end of watch on there. It's a very different... Um, scenario when someone 
dies by suicide, who's a first responder. There's not all those honors, um, you know, white glove honors that um, would happen in a, a line of duty death. Um, you know, family, siblings, you know, was they die by suicide, all of those type of things like health insurance um, are gone for, for a spouse, are gone right away. Um, they have, you know, no health insurance. They all those different things that, you know, would be taken care of um, if there was a line of duty debt. That's all very different for a first responder or a first responder family who, who died by suicide. And, um, you know, with traumas on the job and what goes on. So I think when Alex passed, um, there was sort of some stigma for me, self-imposed stigma um, of being afraid when someone asked me, how did your son die? Um, you know, we lost our son. I, I wouldn't say it at the beginning. I was sort of ashamed um, to say the word suicide, that we lost him by suicide. Maybe fear of being judged. I don't know. But very quickly, um, I had a lot of first responders coming in. I told you earlier on, we have a lot of police officers come in, fire, EMS, dispatch. They all come in. All uh, They all come into the cafe. It's, it's the hub locally and all the surrounding towns around here. And, um, you know, they would all come in who knew of it. Obviously, they had heard of his death. And um, very quickly from them sharing their stories with me, I realized that there was a lot of first responders struggling. I didn't realize it until then, until after we lost Alex, that there was a lot of first responders struggling with mental health, trauma, picking up different, you know, filling up that backpack, as they say, right? Um, or compacting whatever they see on the job on an everyday basis and not sharing it with anybody, holding it in. And uh, I can't unknow now what I know now um, since Alex's passing. Um, and the only way that I can use my energy is to be putting it into helping others, helping other first responders. So a lot of them started coming in and talking to me, like pulling me aside, have you got a minute? And started talking to me and coming in and chatting away with me and um before I knew it um I had done some mental health like mental health first aid I did a got a training and assist with a applied suicide intervention training skills and um the QPR psychological first aid and I just wanted to be someone that if they needed to talk well, then I could be here. So since then, I have um, become friends with my co-host. Uh, Jay is, is not here. Become friends with my co-host, too, who's a firefighter, also a veteran. And, uh, and he was one of those guys who would come in and talk to me. And I didn't know at the beginning, like, how much he was hurting and uh, how much he was struggling. And um, when I became his coach, uh, a life coach. For him and I have background training in, in coaching in my previous profession and uh, I went back to school and became a life coach for first responders 
and then not a therapist, although he says I'm a therapist to him, but I'm not. I'm a I'm a coach. Um, basically, like and when I met him even first, and um, you know, even for him to fold a basket of laundry was a difficult task. He had lost sort of all his executive functioning skills through what he was going through, and I wanted to help him through that. So he's turned his life around. Um, three sixty. He's gone back to school. He's resigned from his job and uh, as a firefighter of 18 years, a lieutenant. And uh, he's gone back to school now in BU in, in Boston, Boston University. And uh, he's becoming a clinician to help first responders now in, a, in another way. Um, he's very passionate about it, as am I. So, yeah. Hey guys, if you missed out on the last conference in Nashville, Tennessee, you don't want to miss out on the next one. It's April 28th through May 3rd, Orlando, Florida, the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center. You made a mistake missing the last one. You don't want that to happen again on this one. Five days of some of the best training you're ever going to experience packed into one event. We have an early bird special right now, $50 off. Use 24 early bird on our website, streetcop.com. Look for the conference, click the link, register today. If you want to get significantly better at this profession in five days, don't dare miss out on the 2024 Street Cop Conference. But I'm very passionate about helping first responders. Um, I believe there's a stigma in departments. Um, Some departments are great, and we want to hear about those good departments that are helping and and maybe help, help them inspire other departments who are not so good. Um, but there definitely is a stigma within departments that we want to help first responders be able to talk about what they're going through or what they see every day, make it a norm, um, not to be a stigma um, or not to be afraid of being ridiculed or be talked about or be judged or a fear of feeling weak um, because they have some heaviness going on. It's important. It's important to make talking about mental health um and normal it has to be it's the only way that it's going to end um suicide in first response which it's the number one killer by the way in first responders more than the line of duty yeah 55 police officers to date um 16 firefighters six dispatchers and uh two ems so far this year, this year, to date. And that's reported by First Help, who we're very involved with. Yeah. Did you see any changes in Alex prior to him taking his life? Anything that was noticeable? Besides the obvious things of his significant changes in his life. And, but did you see anything over the top that you've never seen before? No. That would help us. Nothing. Now, people say that, yeah. No, no, there was, um, I mean, what I know now from my trainings, right, all those signs and those red flags, no, he wasn't drinking um, to put himself asleep. Um, he wasn't, you know, taking any medications to to numb out whatever other physical pain he might be going through. He didn't. He would come home when he was living with us. He would come home. He would go for a run. He would have a swim in the pool. He would have dinner with us. He was just sad over his marriage and, you know, his kids. Um, he, you know, he also, I mean, there was a very large, um, you might remember the same year 
um, that Alex passed in 2018, in, in, Ju- in July um, 15, 2018, uh, Officer Michael Chesna was um, killed in the line of duty. Um, it was very big. It was all in the news. Uh, and also a civilian, Vera Adams, was killed. And I remember Alex, you know, going at it with his with his um, chief because um, he came home. He was very hurt and sad that his department, you know, were the only department that weren't allowed to go and cover shifts for the Weymouth Police Department. You know, like all other towns were covering shifts while those funerals were going on. And um, and he was very sad that his, his chief, you know, wouldn't let them participate in that. And I suppose because they were short-staffed at the time, but still he didn't feel it was right that they, they he wanted to, to cover shifts. And um, his, his chief wasn't a, wasn't a very good chief. I mean, a lot of them, after Alex passed, a lot of them left that department. Since then, there's a new chief. I mean, we never even got a call. Our family never got a call from that chief to say, I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah. I think he was probably told to stay away. He was not at the funeral um, of Alex. But no, we did not notice any of those things other than the obvious of what was going on. Um, that he was sad. He, he, he wanted to be with his kids. He wanted to have his family back, you know? As a, as a kid, did Alex have any mental health issues that you know of as a kid? Well, no. I mean, not diagnosed. I mean, he was definitely, I remember years ago going to school and I'd say, let's go, we're getting on the bus. And he'd say, I have to go to the bathroom. And I mean, now knowing, I mean, we have our younger daughter, Ailish, has a, a, an anxiety disorder. And known from her, um, you know, the things that she would say, I don't feel well, I, you know, I'm I'm in the bathroom or I don't want to go to school today. Other kids that have a sick tummy don't get, you know, get to stay home. Why can't I stay home? So he would definitely have had those, but um, they were undiagnosed. It was definitely undiagnosed. It was never doctor diagnosed. It was just, I don't want to go to school today. You know, that type of way. And he would end up going. He, I would say, well, we, let's go. We have to go to school. You can't keep on staying home. We have to go. And he would go into school and then he would come home. Yeah. What was your relationship like with your son? Early on, I mean, as a, a teenager, um, I would say there was probably a lot of battles, you know, of let's go, let's get to school, that type of way. Um, but when he was in it, older, for sure, there was very much mutual respect, especially when he started to have a family. He realized, you know, I, as I said, yeah, I'm like that to me, dad, you know, I, I'm, I was the structure in the phone, run in the home, running the home, um, getting the kids out to school, getting them to after school activities. I was the one do, doing all of that. Dad traveled a lot. So dad wasn't home a lot. So I was the one that ran the whole home. And, and um, so do, I definitely had those battles with him, as with any typical teenager um, in those years. But as he grew up, there was definitely much more mutual respect. And we were the ones, I mean, when he came back home, myself and himself would be the ones that would be sitting talking half the night about how we, how we could sort of help him. And um, 
advising him to go to therapy and marriage counseling if he wanted to make it work, if there was some hope there, um, and even going as far as finding him a counselor, um, that type of way. But yeah, yeah, he was how a good kid. Feel, how do you feel about his ex-wife? Don't have a relationship. That says it in a nutshell. Um, we don't have a relationship. I mean, Alex was um, the one that would bring the kids up to the house. The divorce, when we don't have a relationship, Dennis. So the divorce, when, when he came to live with us, he went to get a divorce. And um, the divorce was going through. And there was a, like a 90-day wait because there's kids involved. Alex took his life a week before that. So um, he was cremated and um, he's not buried. He's in, he's in his family home and um, his ex-wife has his, his ashes and uh, we've asked, could we have some? And um, there's never been a response. So, you will see your grandkids at all. Get emotional. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Well, I think it's justified to get emotional, and I think that that just reveals the significant amount of pain that you've been put through um, that you never asked for. It's hard. Um, suicide. I mean, I don't know if you know, are aware of families who have lost an officer to suicide. There's so much that goes through your head of was it something that I missed, you know? Um why why did he do it? Did he did he not feel loved by the rest of his family? Um or he couldn't talk to me. We talked about for me, uh you know, at the beginning, there was so much anger. I was very angry at him. And um, for taking his life and not not let me help him. Because I feel I could have. Um, but I just feel he was so lost. Um, and in so much pain. I don't feel he wanted to die. I don't feel any first responder who takes their life wants to die. I really feel that in my heart. I feel they just want to get rid of the pain that they're going through. And um, and there's other, you know, other circumstances that, um, you know, they might feel unworthy or they're burdensome to the family. Um, boy, Alex, it was loved by so many people. I mean, this... His loss is still is still carried in with his, you know, his work buddies. I mean, they still struggle. They still carry that with them. And, um, you know, to lose a first responder, oh, man, to a police officer. You know, I can understand why Alex didn't go to his department to say, I need help um, because of the chief who was there, right? Police officer goes and said, I'm struggling, you know, I need, I need some help. Maybe I need to go somewhere to, to get some help. Well, 
from what I know now, I mean, his gun probably would have been taken away from him, right? And um, then he wouldn't have been able to support his family um, and support his kids. And then he wouldn't be able to work. So what would he have done? So I understand in the police officer terms, um, you know, why they won't go and, and talk about what they saw in that last call or whatever other struggles, personal struggles that they're going through um, because of, of ridicule or being put on the rubber gun squad. Um, that's what they, they call it up here anyway. Um, and the same with a firefighter, you know, firefighters, superheroes, they're putting out fires, they're driving around in that big red truck. They're, you're all superheroes, you know, um, in the eyes of civilians just like me. Um, but they're not. You take off a uniform at the end of the day and you go home to families and your dads and you're someone's dad and you're someone's um, wife if you're a female first responder, um, someone's son or daughter or, or grandchild. Um, and it's it's hard. It's very, very difficult to, you know, that it's not recognized for whatever, if if it was, you know, a diagnosis of PTSD within the department, um, from what they saw from years of um, trauma, you're you're in a trauma job, right? Um, and you get exposed to different debt. You see debt every day, and and what you see is not normal. So. It's normal for you, for a first responder, to have trauma symptoms and um, and experience, you know, struggling. Um, it's normal. It's normal. It's not normal for you not to go and seek help. And departments do need to be supporting first responders that are struggling. Um, for sure. So I've become a huge advocate um, locally in our in our town and um, in in all towns. And I'll never stop talking. I'll never stop speaking about being an advocate to uh, first responders. And again, we have great chiefs. We have great departments who are helping um, the first responders and have open door policy. Let's get you the help um, that you need. And I love that. I love love that. We just had a fire chief in and said hey you know what I go to therapy every week and you know for me working driving around the the town that I work in and you know recalling hey that street is the corner where we we couldn't save a life of a car crash right and they remember the names and they remember the smell or they or train we have a train tracks going by here all the time and train um you know fatalities um, that here they see all of that I put myself in their shoes every day and I think man if I saw one death or witnessed one car accident with a a, a death a horrific death I don't think I would ever be the same and, I, and you wouldn't be so how can we expect first responders to be the same when they witness these things every day so departments need to be I think um, more more proactive rather than reactive and not knowing what to do in the case of a first responder suicide. Um, 
they don't know how to handle it, for sure. What kind of pain do you live with today and every day? And the other half of that question is, what do you say to someone who might be having suicidal thoughts? This is my final question. Yeah. Uh, what kind of pain I live every day? Um, I think about Alex every day. Um, I wish he was here. I wish that his life could be in full. There's a heart, there's a hole in in our heart that um, will never be filled. Uh, that pain of his loss will never go away. We as a family just have learned how to live through it, that pain. And some days they're good days and some days they're not so good days. Thankfully, you know, I've learned how to be able to smile again um, and be able to laugh. And I think that just started putting my energy into um, being an advocate for other first responders who are struggling. I mean, I know so much more now than I did even before, you know, when Alex first passed five years ago. I've gained so much more knowledge and um, education about all of this struggle that first responders go through. So I hope that answers your question. That pain will never go away. It's just deep, deep, deep pain. But it's a deep pain that drives me, that gives me the drive and energy to be able to to take on a task of of making it better for others. If we can save one life, right, or one force responder life, or someone hears this podcast and it helps them and helps them to have the courage to go and get help. And I'm here to tell you that you're not weak if you go and seek help. You're strong. You're a leader if you go and seek help. You're helping your family. You're helping your department. You're helping your children um, and yourself. And uh, don't give a damn about others, um, you know, judging you. Um, go and seek help. What would I say to others um, who might be struggling, another family or someone who has suicide thoughts? Um, seek help. You are loved. You are worthy. Um, you are strong. Go and seek help someone who is competent in being able to um, help a first responder. Um, go find the right therapist. If, you, if it's someone local here in this area that's listening to this, um, if you don't know anybody, I can put you in touch with um, a, a, a competent therapist or a program who is going to be able to help you, uh, especially in first response. Um, I think it's very important to find the right therapist, um, for sure. But you cannot hold on to it yourself because what happens is is you start listening to your head here um, and, and your head is telling you that you're not worthy, um, that you're a burden and, and you're also feeling your pain. Um, but come in and see me if you want to come in and see me. My door is always open here at the cafe especially if it's local, um, or pick up the phone. There's a 988 hotline right now. I mean, you can call those a hotline. You can seek out um, first responders um, 
programs. There's so many first responder programs. Get yourself into a program, great program down in Virginia, Boulder Crest Foundation. Um, there's a great program up here in Massachusetts, um, on-site academy. There's just so many programs available um, and hospitals that can help specifically for first responders. So I urge you to please just consider one more day and seeking help um, because you are worth it, for sure. It's a very good message. And I, on behalf of everybody else in this community, we appreciate the fact that you are able to take the pain that you live in and turn it into something good, which is very, very difficult to do. So I applaud you for that. And Thank you. I can't, I can't thank you enough for being on here and spending the time. Where can people find you outside of the cafe? Oh, well, they can find me at Linda at hope beyond the badge um, at gmail.com. Um, it's an email. You can find us on Facebook, hope beyond the badge started my own little podcast, Dennis, um, specifically just talking about mental health and first response. And we're bringing in, you know, we interview chiefs and all different first responders who are maybe have struggled, um, suicide loss survivors, you know, we want to be able to help first responders or first responder families and be able to talk about that. So it's talked about openly. Is that, is that called the Hope Beyond the Badge podcast? Yeah. Hope Beyond the Badge pod, yeah, podcast. Where can and, people uh, find that on Spotify, regular Apple? Yeah. Yeah. All of all the podcast outlets. Yeah. Well, I think you've provided a great resource for folks. And uh, I am going to come see you next time in the area. And um, we just... Probably early 2024, we're looking at it. We were anticipating being in the Boston area this fall. It didn't work out uh, the way that I planned it, but you can guarantee that you're going to see me stopping and, and uh, having something to eat and chat it up with you. Oh, we would love that. We'd love to have you here in the area for sure. And and I I know you do lots of training. So if you are up here, you'll make sure that we get that all out in our area for sure. Put it all out there. Thank That's you, Dan. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. You have a great evening. Hey guys, check out our upcoming training at streetcop.com. Don't forget, we have 50 instructors nationally teaching a variety of topics. These are the best classes you're going to experience in your career. We make sure of it. You're going to love it. I guarantee you, you're going to be thankful that you went. Check us out at streetcop.com for all upcoming classes in your area.